0: So I've worked here at the museum for over a decade, and as long as our speaker tonight, Kevin Levin, lived in Charlottesville, he was a regular fixture in our research library and could always be cajoled into talking about the American Civil War. So when we received word of the publication of Searching for Black Confederates, we leapt at the opportunity to bring him back to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Not surprisingly, our friends at the American Civil War Museum were also working to bring Kevin back to Richmond, and so I'm very pleased that together we're able to make this evening's program possible. Uh, Tonight's program is part of a series of discussions our museum has been hosting in conjunction with our most recent exhibition entitled Determined the 400-Year Struggle for Black Equality, which will be on display through March of 2020 which explores the impact that African Americans have had and continue to have in the story of our state and our nation. I'm also pleased that tonight's program is a continuation of our longtime partnership with the American Civil War Museum and the work that both of our organizations have been doing together and separately to engage in meaningful discussions about our shared past. So tonight we're fortunate to have with us Stephanie Arduini, the Director of Education and Programs at the American Civil War Museum, who will introduce tonight's speaker.
1: Thank you, Andy, and thank you all for coming out this evening. So on behalf of the American Civil War Museum, and we're a proud partner of tonight's program, I'm here to introduce our speaker, our, a longtime colleague of our museum. So Kevin M. Levin is an award-winning educator and historian based in Boston, Massachusetts. He's written extensively about the American Civil War and has spoken across the country on how we choose to remember the Civil War, including the controversies surrounding Confederate monuments and the idea of Black Confederates. Kevin is the author and editor of several books, including his most recent, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. His writings and expertise have appeared in such national media, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Smithsonian, C-SPAN, NPR, and Vox. He is currently working on an edited collection of primary sources and secondary sources on the history and memory of Confederate monuments for classroom use, as well as a biography of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. Kevin's background as an educator is essential to all that he does. Over the past 20 years, he has taught a wide range of high school and college courses in American history and he's currently teaching high school students at Gann Academy in Waltham, Massachusetts, where he continues to work extensively with educators there and educators and students around the country to better understand difficult subjects such as the ongoing controversies surrounding Civil War memory. So please help me welcome our speaker tonight, Kevin Levin.
2: So, good evening, everyone. So, I am thrilled to be here tonight. Um, Thrilled to be back in Richmond. Uh, As was just mentioned, uh, I spent 11 years uh, living and teaching in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I spent, obviously, a lot of time uh, here in Richmond doing research uh, for various book projects, uh, but also bringing my students uh, from Charlottesville down to Richmond to sort of tour Monument Avenue, places like Hollywood Cemetery. I mean, what better way to teach the American Civil War and Civil War memory than to actually bring your students to these sites? And I did that on a regular basis, so it's great to be back Um, here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and and thanks as well to the American Civil War Museum for um, co-sponsoring this. I was thinking about how to start this presentation tonight, and I think the best way to do so is actually to thank uh, the staffs at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and the American Civil War Museum for for the important work that they've done over the last few years, And I'm thinking, uh, stretching back at least to the beginning of the Civil War sesquicentennial, Um, and obviously more recently, you know, in light of the violence that took place in Charleston, the murders that took place uh, as a result of Dylan Roof's um, visit, if you will, to the AME Church in Charleston, the murders that took place. Um, And of course, more recently here in Virginia in 2017 with the white supremacist, rally in Charlottesville that left one young woman dead. Um, These conversations, I think it's safe to say, are obviously about how we are now remembering or struggling to come to terms with uh, the memory of the Civil War, the legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, At the root of these discussions, especially... Uh, if you think of the debate right now over the monuments and memorials in places like Richmond and other towns and cities across the country, I think it's safe to say that at the root of it all is the difficulty that we still have in 2019 in coming to terms with the legacy of slavery and white supremacy. I think many of us thought that we had um, made some progress over the last uh, 10, 15 years, and perhaps the last few years have reminded us uh, that we are, we are not so far along, or not as far as we thought. And both of these institutions have done vital work in engaging the community here in Richmond and beyond. I can't think of more important work right now, and I hope it continues. I suspect that it will. But the book that I just finished is very much a part of this conversation about the legacy of the war and Reconstruction, and I think the difficulty of just what the Civil War was about, what Reconstruction was about, and just the contested landscape of it all, what we're still dealing with 150 plus years later. Um, My book is about one small narrative that has emerged from the long history or the long legacy of the war, the myth of the black Confederate soldier. What is this myth? Well, it's actually a very narrow, it's a very sort of well-defined myth. Um, Depending on who you talk to, uh, the claim is that anywhere between 500 and 100,000 African-Americans fought as soldiers in the Confederate Army. Now, that, of course, right off the bat, should send some warning lights going. We should see some warning lights going off, right? We can't seem to narrow it down between 500 and 100,000. So right off the bat, (laughs) the fact that the people who are pushing this narrative can't agree on a number or even come into close proximity of an agreed-upon number is is actually quite telling. But what I want to do is I want to start with uh, the following image. Because for many people who have fallen for this narrative, this myth who promote it actively, um, can look no further than the image or the photograph in front of you. For many people, this is one of the most iconic, one of the most important photographs from the history of the Confederate military. Because at first glance, it looks as if what you're looking at here uh, are two Confederate soldiers. Uh, I would suggest that what you are looking at is, in fact, one of the most important photographs from the history of American slavery. And that's what I'm going to try to sort of um, expand upon uh, during this talk tonight. Again, it's easy to see why people fall for this myth. Uh, They appear to be both soldiers. They're sitting next to one another. Uh, They're both, of course, wearing Confederate uniforms. And and what stands out beyond that uh, is that they seem to be armed right to the teeth, right? I mean, anywhere that you can fit a weapon, You've got it, right? And you can find this photograph on hundreds, if not thousands, of websites today. Of course, what you're in fact looking at is an example of the master-slave relationship at war between 1861 and 1865. The man on the right is Silas Chandler, and the man on the left, or the boy on the left, I should say, roughly 17 years old, Andrew Chandler. Uh, Silas was born into the Chandler family here in Virginia. Uh, as a young man, he f- went with, traveled with the family when they moved to Mississippi, as a lot of other slaveholding families did in the 1830s and 1840s, to take advantage of King Cotton in new states like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Uh, this family, the Chandler family, ended up in West Point, Mississippi. Uh, in the summer of 1861, <laughs> Andrew enlisted in the 44th Mississippi Infantry. This photograph very likely was taken at that time uh, in a studio. And if you now, I think, are with me, and you see this not as an example of two soldiers, uh, but as master and slave, I think you can take on a slightly different perspective uh, when you look at this photograph. Because when I look at it now, having looked at it for 10-plus years, I sometimes chuckle. Uh, You know, it's, it's hard not to. Because I imagine this young, bright-eyed boy, never been off to war before, of course, walks into a studio with his body servant, as he would have been called, Silas, what I call in the book a camp slave, uh, so there's no confusion as to the legal status of these individuals. Um, They're walking into the studio, and I imagine Andrew in his uniform excited about the prospects of war, wanting to demonstrate his manhood, his bravery to his family back home with a photograph. I imagine him walking into the studio and just being sort of impressed by all of the weapons arrayed in front of him. And he sits down. He has Silas sit down next to him. And Andrew proceeds to fit in as many weapons as possible, as if the more weapons included in this photograph the more impressed the family will be back home in West Point, uh, Mississippi. Silas was one among thousands of enslaved men who was attached to his master, who ended up in the Confederate Army as enslaved men. Now, I'll come back to the body servants in a second, but I want to make the important point um, that the largest number of enslaved men who are present Um, or or functioning in various capacities as part of the Confederate war effort are not body servants or camp slaves, but as impressed slaves that are mobilized by the Confederacy between 1861 and 1865 to perform any number of jobs, any number of functions that will reinforce, uh, assist the Confederate war effort. And I don't need to remind anyone in this room why that would be necessary. Uh, the Confederacy, of course, lacks in all kinds of things, uh, war material and even, of course, population-wise compared to the United States. And so if the Confederacy is going to utilize or maximize the number of white men in the army to shoulder a rifle, they're going to have to you know, mobilize as much of the enslaved population to do the necessary work to make that possible. And so what you have here, of course, is one example. You have enslaved men, impressed slaves, uh, constructing earthworks. Uh, outside of Charleston on James Island in 1862. I suspect that enslaved men were responsible for helping to construct the earthworks around Richmond uh, during the war. Uh, you would have found enslaved men constructing and repairing rail lines. They would have been working in mines. Um, they would have worked here, of course, locally at the Tredegar Iron Works, um, helping with the construction of uh, of ammunition, cannon, right? Anything, again, that the, that the Confederacy needs... Um, to advance the the war effort, they would have done. these are not the men that are written about today as part of this black Confederate myth. The most of these men are nameless, um, but they are a crucial aspect of the war that often goes unnoticed, um, in addition to these camp slaves or or body servants and so here are a couple of examples. Uh, again, there would have been thousands of these men, uh, these body servants in various confederate armies and if you want to get a sense of the scale uh, imagine robert e lee's army marching north in the summer of 1863 through maryland into south central pennsylvania culminating in the battle of gettysburg uh, in july of uh, between july 1st and july 3rd um, if we're estimating that army the size roughly 75 80,000 men there may have been as many as 10,000 enslaved men body servants impressed slaves making the army, allowing the army to do what it needs to do. And I'll come back to that um, in a second. Uh, Here's a more common example of sort of a photograph of of the camp slaves of these body servants. Here's another one here um, of an Alabama officer with his uh, camp slave, Burrell. One of the things that I found interesting in doing the research is I, I wanted to better understand You know, we usually think of the master-slave relationship in the context of the plantation or or a small farm where the master and slave sort of come to some agreement or the master is able to sort of set the expectations for his enslaved population over the course of a period of time. Um, Both parties become used to the landscape um, of that that particular setting. But what happens when you pluck that master-slave relationship out of the plantation and place it into something that's entirely new, right? Um, an entirely new landscape that where there are a lot of unknowns. And that's one of the things I wanted to sort of better understand, because what I learned is that over time, this master-slave relationship both stretched for a number of reasons and contracted at different times. And sometimes that relationship, of course, was severed Entirely, and, and the obvious example of that would be uh, a camp slave running off for, uh, permanently. So that's an example where um, the relationship is severed. right? And that happens, of course, throughout the war. But just as interesting was the sort of watching enslaved men, camp slaves, pushing their masters for increased privileges, uh, the right to earn money during uh, days where they had some free time, and I found that a number of these enslaved men, these camp slaves, took advantage of that. Some of them actually make so much money, they end up purchasing either their own uniforms or parts of uniforms. Why they did that, of course, is uh, is unknown. Um, perhaps they wanted to feel sort of more closely connected with the army. They wanted to see themselves, perhaps, uh, as something other than an enslaved individual. That perhaps they were, in a sense, role playing. Uh, I found that these men during long marches, these camp slaves, would march together. Some of them even had unofficial ranks, right? And so perhaps what you, what you find uh, are these examples where these camp slaves are creating their own sense of community within the army itself. a sort of an example of, of role-playing. Sometimes, of course, that relationship gets stretched a bit too far, and a Confederate officer will have to push back and reset Uh, the terms of that relationship. And I found a number of examples where that happens. Uh, One of the most um, brutal examples is of a Confederate officer who writes home in vivid detail to his wife about having to stretch out full, as he said, uh, this enslaved man uh, in a home. And he describes uh, delivering 400 lashes uh, to this individual. So you find that the dynamic of that relationship, the master-slave relationship, whatever you find back home, you find that playing out um, in camp um, as well. I also found uh, found a number of examples of what I would describe as genuine other concern for for one another. And I want to be very careful about how I frame this because I want us to keep in mind that we are talking about a relationship that at its center was coercion, was this idea of legal ownership, So I don't want to sort of suggest here that we're talking about friends at war together. But if you're talking about two men who are both away from home for long periods of time, away from their respective families, Silas had a family back home, a wife and a newborn that he never met. Um, If you're talking about moments where food is lacking, weather, experiencing bad weather, and of course, disease. I found these moments where Master was taking care of The enslaved man, and vice versa. And again, I want to be very careful about how we characterize these relationships. Uh, But I don't want, I want to leave open the possibility that there was some kind of emotional, uh, I don't want to say bond necessarily, but connection, if you will. And maybe I'm not even allowed to go that far. But I at least had to explore this as part of that master slave relationship in this new, uh, this very new landscape. As I mentioned before, there were thousands of these men in their respective Confederate armies. Um, and I want to sort of impress upon you what I think is an important point about this. Because we tend to think of Confederate armies when we imagine them. We think of them as white. We think of these armies marching off as an army of white men. But now imagine an army, a Confederate army, that includes 10,000 enslaved men, an army of slaves. And I think that's important to keep in mind because I think we tend, to, uh, we tend to draw a distinction between what the Confederacy was fighting for, which many of us are no problem sort of admitting, acknowledging the importance of slavery to the Confederacy. But Confederate soldiers, not all of them owned slaves. They weren't interested in defending slavery. If you have this idea, this image now of an army of slaves marching off, then I think you have to place that distinction in check. Because I would suggest to you that even if you owned zero slaves, you had just as much an interest in maintaining slavery as someone who owned 100. Why? Because every day you woke up and you could see around you the central importance of slavery. Slaves are what made the army possible. Enslaved men are what allows a Confederate army to camp efficiently, it allows a Confederate army to march, and it also allows an army to engage in battle. (laughs) Enslaved men are the cornerstone, to use Alexander Stevens's word, of the Confederate military. There is no Confederate army without enslaved men, and it is impossible for me to imagine that Confederate soldiers don't see that every single day. They are reminded of it every day, in camp, on the march, as well as on the battlefield. So I want to make that point vitally clear. I also want to sort of remind us that at no point during the war, before, before the end of the war, in March of 1865, are any Confederates under the illusion of the status of black men in the Confederate Army. I have yet to find a single account of Confederates who are acknowledging before this important debate takes place, which I'll get to in a second, in 1864, that black men are fighting as soldiers in the Confederate Army. No one is confused, and that is often lost in the current debate that we are having about these so-called black Confederates. In fact, uh, when Confederates learn or read in northern newspapers they, hear, they read reports, and there are countless reports in northern newspapers of the Confederate Army utilizing black men as soldiers. They push back vigorously against this idea. They find it insane. It's a crazy idea. Why would Confederates recruit black men as soldiers, given, as we all know, that what the Confederacy was fighting for was the defense and expansion of slavery and white supremacy? It would undercut the very purpose of the Confederacy. And that is the, essentially the argument that emerges in 1864. Because by early 1864, more and more people are acknowledging that Confederate hopes for independence are diminishing. Right, everyone, More people can see it. The first general, not the first during the war, but certainly the most important in this debate, is Patrick Claiborne on our left in the Army of Tennessee, recent arrival from Ireland. Uh, He broaches the idea with his command of enlisting slaves as soldiers. Uh, Some of his command is curious about this idea, but there are a number of people who are outraged. And word gets back to Jefferson Davis here in Richmond that this discussion is taking place, and Davis immediately ordered Claiborne and others to cease talking about this. This would undercut, again, the purpose of the Confederacy itself. But within a few months, of course, that debate has become much more public, much more vocal. More people are involved in it. You can read editorials throughout the Confederacy in various newspapers. Soldiers are writing home about this. Entire regiments are taking positions on the question of slave enlistment. And it's a very public and a very divisive debate, as you can imagine. Uh, former politician, general in the Confederate Army, Hal Cobb, most famously, writes, the moment you resort to Negro soldiers, your white soldiers will be lost to you. The day you make soldiers of them is the beginning of the end of the revolution. If slaves will make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. The Richmond Daily Examiner, if a Negro is fit to be a soldier, he is not fit to be a slave. The employment of Negroes as soldiers will be the first step to universal Abolition. Certainly, there were people who came out for it. Many of them were willing to sacrifice slavery, not in its entirety. Most of them were willing uh, to sort of allow for a limited emancipation for the sake of perhaps um, extending the war. But this debate goes on throughout 64 and early 65. It's not until Robert E. Lee comes out for it that the Confederate Congress really is able to sort of push for it and on March 13th, they barely, um, they're barely able to pass legislation allowing for the enlistment of slaves. But as you all know, it's, it's much too late to make a difference in the outcome of the war. Again, what I want to stress right here right at this point is no one who writes for or against during this very public, very divisive debate ever comes out and says, oh, by the way, there are already black men fighting as soldiers in the army it doesn't exist. And that, of course, I used to have a uh, a competition. I I offered a reward, a $100 reward on my blog for a number of years, if you could find it. I mean, it would have been the find of the century, as far as I was concerned. Uh, Just a quick cartoon, Northern newspapers having a little bit of fun at the expense of this uh, this proposal, the idea being, of course, that once you recruit these black men as soldiers in the Confederate Army, they will immediately drop their weapons. And of course, you know what follows. They're going to run off to the enemy. The war ends in the spring of 1865 as it began for the Confederacy. Despite the last-minute legislation, it ended pretty much as a white man's war. Okay? Um, the post-war period is interestingly consistent with the war, year, the war years, uh, camp slaves, black uh, body servants, are a prominent feature in the Lost Cause of the post-war South. This narrative that defeated Southerners, defeated Confederates, uh, developed uh, as a way to sort of explain defeat, as a way to explain uh, what had just happened. Right, the war wasn't about slavery in the end. Their generals like Lee and Jackson remained morally just. The Confederate cause of course, also remained uh, morally just. And at the center of it all is the enslaved population, remained loyal to the Confederacy until the very end of the war. And and camp slaves are are a central image, if you will, um, in in making that claim, right? And here you have, of course, a popular popular post-war illustration, Jackson leading a religious service, and you can see to his right you can see the body servant, right? You can see the camp slave. And it was, again, a popular image in, the, in this sort of post-war literature. Uh, Confederate veterans write about their loyal body servants. They forget all about body servants running off, uh, different kinds of, um, of protests that take place or, 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 or rocky relationships between master and slave. The relationship was perfect. It was an, it was an expression of, um, of sort of southern paternalism, Uh, In the end, here you have another image. Uh, You can see one black man lounging by a tent. And in the background, uh, you can see a couple um, black men and women preparing food. Again, central features in this sort of lost cause narrative. And this continues into the end of the 19th, early 20th century, when Confederate veterans uh, get together for their reunions. Former body servants are present uh, are consistently present, uh, in some cases in fairly large numbers, from what I can tell. Um, they may have attended for any number of reasons, I suspect. Uh, some of them perhaps wanting to maintain connections made during the war. Some of them, it seems to me, are, have self-interested reasons. Perhaps they believe that attending a Confederate uh, reunion might reinforce their position back home. Uh, remember, some of these Confederate veterans now occupy important positions of leadership in their respective communities. So perhaps attending uh, might place them in in good favor um, back home. Some of them earn money at these reunions, which you want to remember, attract thousands of people from around the country. And some of them are quite popular. Here is Jefferson Shields. You can see he's wearing a number of reunion badges. Um, He attends at least 10 Confederate veterans reunions uh, during the post-war period. One of the most interesting examples is this man. Steve Eberhardt Perry, fascinating man from Georgia. Uh, his master's surname was, of course, Eberhardt. Um, when he attends the reunion, uh, he adopts the Eberhardt surname. When he's away from it, he uses Perry, which is interesting. And, I, and it's possible that perhaps Eberhardt understood the role he was playing at these reunions. And, and I want to emphasize that, that these camp, former camp slaves play, in a, play a very important role Uh, in these reunions because they are living reminders of the loyalty of these camp slaves. They are are, uh, a living manifestation of the loyal slave at a time when, of course, the post-war South is experiencing a good deal of racial unrest. So as younger African Americans are pushing for civil rights in various capacities, um, white authority... Uh, Figures and Confederate veterans can sort of point to these camp slaves and say, behave like them. Know your place, just like these individuals do. They were loyal to their masters during the war and the Confederacy, and they they remain loyal even decades later. They know their place in society. And so they take on a very important kind of uh, symbolic uh, role. Uh, at these reunions. And Eberhardt seems to understand this. In fact, at one point at a reunion, he says the following. He says, I shall ever remain in my place and be obedient to all the white people. I pray that the angels may guard the homes of all Rome, meaning Rome, Georgia, and the light of God shine upon them. And then he goes on to say, I have always been a white man's, and then he uses the N word, and the Yankees can't change me, sir. Did he really believe this? Did he understand that that's what white audiences wanted to hear? Very difficult to know, of course. Uh, But that kind of language courses throughout uh, what you hear, the records from from these veterans' reunions. Uh, So I suspect that many of these former camp slaves understand that they are role-playing. They're filling that important role for these white southerners uh, during the during the period of Jim Crow. Um, here's another uh, wonderful image. Uh, you can see Steve Eberhardt with the flamboyant hat and carrying the Confederate flag. He's sitting there. Uh, he was also known for carrying two live chickens. Uh, he played the role of the forager, right, as someone who during the war was able to sort of rustle up food at crucial moments. And so he was known for carrying two live chickens around. If you look to uh, if you just go two people to the to the right, you'll see a man wearing a hat and what appears to be a white ribbon. If you actually blow up this photograph, that ribbon very clearly sta- says ex-slave. You'll find this photograph on again numerous websites as examples. As an example of the many black men who fought as soldiers. These are all formerly enslaved men. They are not soldiers, and there is no record of Confederate veterans or anyone else that attended these reunions that was under the impression that any of these men was fighting or fought as a soldier during the war. They're very consistent with the war years. Here's another one. I'm just going to go through these. It, this gives you a sense of just how sort of popular the the image of the loyal slave was by the beginning of the 20th century. This is an advertisement. Uh, From the New York Tribune, you have Robert E. Lee selling a new washing machine, which of course makes perfect sense. Um, It reflects, of course, Lee's prominence, his place in the national memory uh, by the early 20th century, but notice next to him is the camp slave cleaning his socks. So that's also included, which I find quite interesting. You'll also find the, the camp slave, the memory of the camp slave, in Confederate monuments. And, of course, that period between 1880 and 1930, when many of these monuments and memorials are dedicated, I sort of want to make the important point here to remember, that it's important to remember, that these monuments and memorials are not history lessons. They are not. They tell us about how specific organizations and perhaps the culture at large chose to remember the Confederacy and the American Civil War. And I think the best way to make that point is to look at monuments and memorials that specifically focus on African Americans, and of course, specifically the camp slave. And there are a number of them. Uh, but just before I get to that, to give you a sense of just how deeply or popular that this sort of uh, memory of the loyal, uh, the loyal slave was... Uh, at this point in time in the 1920s, just remember that the U.S. Congress was debating whether or not to construct a national Mammy monument for the National Mall. So imagine today visiting the Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, Washington Monument, and the loyal Mammy monument on the Mall. That didn't happen. But that they were debating it, of course, says a great deal. But there were loyal, there were camp slave uh, monuments to individual camp slaves, as you can see here, There is one in Fort Mill, South Carolina. But the most important one is in Arlington National Cemetery, dedicated by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1914, dedicated with the help of President Woodrow Wilson. Roughly 360 Confederates have been disinterred from area cemeteries, reinterred in Arlington. And this monument, of course, is at its center. If you visit Arlington today and you want to visit the United States Colored Troops that are buried there, you really have to make it a point to want to get there. Section 27 is in the far corner of Arlington. Few people visit. This you can't miss. It's one of the largest monuments in the entire cemetery. Think about that. The men who helped to save this country, preserve the Union, are rarely visited. The men who try to destroy it are given a prominent place. The monument was designed by Moses Ezekiel. And what I want to focus you in on for a quick second, there's your loyal mammy taking the child from the Confederate officer. But if you look to the left, you will see what appears to be a black man wearing a Confederate cap kepi, and uniform. You will find this image, this photograph on hundreds of websites as evidence that the UDC understood the importance of the of remembering the black Confederate soldier. Of course, the UDC had a very different interpretation of this monument in 1914. And of course, you can read it for yourself. On the right is a faithful Negro body servant following his young master. This is from the UDC's official history of the monument. It's not a soldier. It's a former slave that is being depicted in this monument. So these monuments, of course, they're not history lessons. In fact, what they're doing, as you can see, is distorting the history. They're mythologizing the history. But it's even worse than that. Because the, the Lost Cause, and including these monuments, as well as the veterans' reunions, what they do collectively is they reinforce the following. If African-Americans were happy under slavery, if they were really not interested, in their own freedom, but remaining loyal to the Confederacy and their master, then that reinforces the point that they don't really deserve full citizenship rights in a post-war nation. They can remain second-class citizens without full citizenship rights. So how, how memory is shaped has profound, has a profound impact on the politics of Jim Crow. It reinforced it. It justified it, and we have to keep that in mind in this current debate or discussion about these monuments. This is the only one from the period that even comes cl- that actually does depict African Americans as individuals, as men, and that, of course, is the monument to the 54th and Robert Goldshaw in my current hometown of Boston. When does this change? I'm going to sort of move through this fast. For time's sake... This is sort of an unscientific way of getting at the point. Engram is a Google program. You can search by keyword. Um, What's fascinating is you don't find a reference to black Confederates um, before the 1960s and 70s. And it's really the 1970s that this first appears. And it's in response to a number of things, the Civil Rights Movement. It's in response to scholarship, new scholarship that's now focusing on slavery for the first time, emancipation, United States color troops, and that's beginning to filter into the popular culture. Historic sites are beginning to address these issues, but it's roots that seems to have triggered the Sons of Confederate Veterans. It's the first moment where a large swath of the white population of this country is exposed to a much darker interpretation of slavery one very different from what most people would have remembered from watching Gone with the Wind. And because of its popularity, the SCV begins to, there's some chatter within the SCV. They begin to worry about whether or not they'll be able to defend the honor of their Confederate ancestors in this new environment. And one way to actually respond to this is to find their own black Confederate soldiers. So with the increased talk of black Union soldiers as a way to balance the moral scales, if you will, there's this talk of trying to come up with your own black Confederates. And who do they go to? They go straight to those body servants that are in uniform because they are the easiest ones to use to convince. And also, of course, outright manipulation. This is on thousands of websites today. And it is supposedly a photograph of Confederate soldiers from Louisiana. In fact, it is a photograph of black Union soldiers taken outside of Philadelphia in 1864. Of course, what's cropped off from both sides are two white officers, and this was used originally as the basis for a colored lithograph that was used as a recruitment poster in 1864 to recruit, of course, black Union soldiers. So there's a lot of outright manipulation, but of course, you know, in addition to the images of the, soul, of the body servant's and their masters, especially those with in uniform, you can imagine, of course, that this is easy to convince people. So the SCV starts this sort of chatter, it doesn't really have much impact early on. What changes the game is the internet. Because anyone can be his or her, her anyone can be his or her own historian on the internet. You can publish anything. And if, of course, you're now going to the internet for your history, which most of us are, if you're not skilled in searching for information or how to assess websites, you may fall victim, of course, to this narrative. And the author, and I'm not this, most of you know this story, the author of this fourth grade Virginia textbook a few years ago included a reference to thousands of black soldiers fighting with Jackson in the valley. Jackson himself would have been absolutely surprised by this. Um, <laughs> and it, of course, made the news throughout the country and even beyond. When they asked the author Where she got the information from, of course, you know where I'm going to go. I Googled it, and she came across an SCV website. Um, Most people who fall victim to this narrative are not pushing the lost cause. They don't have an agenda. Most people who fall victim to this lack, I think, the historical context. They lack the ability to interpret the relevant primary sources. I hate to say it, they just simply don't know enough. And going to some of these websites and seeing these photographs, some of the ones I've shown you, you can see how people will fall victim to it. This quickly becomes, with the help of the internet, part of our popular culture of the the Civil War. And there are a number of Civil War artists. I used to collect paintings by Don Troiani uh, prints. Um, This one is uh, Bradley Schmiel. I had to sort of ask permission to use this for the book. And when I asked him, is this a body servant or a soldier, he wasn't, you know, wasn't forthcoming, and I don't know if that was intentional uh, or not. Uh, there's one of Jackson's black soldiers, perhaps I, I don't know, but of course one of many prints that you'll find some of these where you'll find some of these images. It also has attracted a small number of African Americans, um, and for the sake of time, I'm going to sort of move through this. And if you want to read more about them. I talk about them in the book, but they come at this from a number of different perspectives, the most popular being uh, H.K. Egerton, who was a former NAACP chapter president, who about 20 years ago left it out of frustration. He is the darling of the SCV. He gives talks throughout the country. He is best known for undertaking these very long marches in his uniform and Confederate battle flag. Uh, As best I can tell, he certainly makes some money doing this, Uh, But at times, you get the sense that he is sort of yearning for a period in American history um, where race relations were not as fraught. And while we may want to have a little laugh at his expense, I would suggest that at least there's some room to listen. I'm not trying to sort of justify, obviously, what he believes. uh, But the one thing I learned from the late Tony Horowitz is that if you're going to sort of look into sort of how people make meaning of the past, and, and, and we all do that in our own way, uh, we do need to spend some time listening uh, and perhaps learning from how other people have sort of chosen to sort of maneuver through this sort of past-present, right? This this sort of overlap between the past and the present, which we all do. The SCV also will uh, manipulate this story by um, dedicating new headstones to body servants. And so Amos Rucker, I don't know what a black CSA soldier servant is. Uh, That's a contradiction, it seems to me. But in the hands of the SCV, um, it confuses people. And I suspect most people believe that we're talking about a soldier here. Same with Weary Clyburn. How many of you would look at that and say, well, this was a former slave? Probably no one in here. Uh, you would say he's a member of the 12th South Carolina Infantry. He wasn't. He was a former slave. And his, his daughter also fell victim to this. Uh, she sort of came under the um, under the wing of the SCV in North Carolina, and they were more than happy to share their preferred narrative with, uh, with Maddie. Uh, they dedicated a new headstone to Weary Clyburn, and when she died... Um, they actually held a military-style funeral for her as a real daughter of the Confederacy. But it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I can understand why she would go, go with this uh, as well as her family. It's an organization that wants to honor her family, his, her father, for his bravery, uh, with a military-style uh, ceremony. Um, I can see why a family might fall under the spell of, uh, of such a narrative. But you can read more about her uh, in the book, and she's absolutely fascinating. I'm just going to end here. Uh, this narrative isn't going anywhere. Uh, in 2015, in the wake of the murders uh, committed by Dylan Roof, the flags, of course, started coming down. The SCV in South Carolina was very vocal. They came out with a statement. Historical facts show that there were black Confederate soldiers. These brave men fight fought in the trenches beside their white brothers, all under the Confederate battle flag. That flag could not have been about racism because black men fought next to white men in the Confederate Army. So Dylan Roof, he was doing his own thing, but that flag that he was carrying had nothing to do with racism. In the wake of Charlottesville, two South Carolina state legislators proposed uh, dedicating a monument to black Confederate soldiers on the grounds of the state capitol. And I think it sort of reinforces. Uh, the point which I started, that these myths about slavery, about the Civil War, I think certainly remind us um, that we still have a long way to go in, in as a nation uh, coming to terms with the legacy of um, slavery, white supremacy, and the Civil War and Reconstruction. Thanks for listening. I'd love to take any questions you have. So, I think there's a microphone coming around or, yeah, on both sides. And feel free to push back um, if you feel a need to. I'm happy to entertain any questions. I'm wondering how uh, much So there's, there, there, there's, there, there's a, um, a mic, so it'll come down. Oh, here it comes. Please.
0: I'd like to know if you received any pushback or argument about your theory.
2: Um, well, I, I've been at this um, for over ten years, and and so the the sh- the, the short answer is oh absolutely. Um, <laughs> in fact, I have um, I have an email file that I'm a couple miles long that I'd be happy to share with you. Um, you know, I think. That The pushback reflects, I think, the point that I was trying to get at tonight, which is overall that uh, this this discussion, this subject, um, opens up a lot of can of worms for a lot of people. And people who are unprepared or unwilling, for whatever reason, to wade into the actual history, um, this is in part what you end up with, people who sort of uh, unleash their rage, which is... Which is fine. Uh, As someone who studies memory of the Civil War, I find it sometimes interesting to sort of read that response because it often reflects um, sort of implicit assumptions about where that individual is coming from. But I got to say, this was not a difficult book to research. It's not as if I had to go sort of um, deep undercover and get permission from archives that were unwilling to share their uh, their materials. Confederates were very upfront about the place of African Americans in the army during the war and within the broader culture, the Civil War culture, or, you know, the, the, the veterans' reunions, et cetera, after the war, you don't have to go far to actually get at, dare I say, the truth. <laughs> Thanks for the question.
0: I'm curious if the military would have entertained the idea of giving black soldiers weapons.
2: Well, I mean, that's a wonderful um, point you're making because, of course, as all of you know, one of the big fears for white Southerners throughout the entire antebellum period is the potential of slave rebellion, right? Uh, certainly, Virginians would have remembered passed-down stories of Nat Turner's rebellion. Certainly, they would have followed earlier in the century uh, the racial unrest in the Caribbean. So, and, and, of course, even the rumors of, of slave violence is enough to send uh, fears throughout you know, communities So the idea of of just simply handing out rifles uh, to enslaved men, whether they're freed or not, uh, (laughs) you have to imagine, they would have thought twice about that. And and I think they did, right? Because of course, the other thing to remember, and I didn't talk about the battlefield at all, uh, because there's a lot of misconceptions about stories of of, of black men fighting on, on battlefields throughout the Civil War. White, white soldiers, Confederates, are deeply ambivalent when they see their camp slaves rushing onto the battlefield because the battlefield is a place for white Southern men to defend and display their honor. It's not a place for black men to, 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 to demonstrate their bravery. If they're as brave as white men on the battlefield, as skilled as white men on the battlefield, then to sort of paraphrase Hal, Hal Cobb, what are we doing here? It's going to undercut the revolution. Slavery itself is undercut. The very assumptions that undergird the slave system. And of course, when they hear that the United States has decided to enlist soldiers, this is a nightmare. And of course, what what do Confederates do on battlefields throughout the South during the war when they come face to face with black men, US soldiers? They murder them. They slaughter them. Why? because they don't see them as soldiers. They see them as slaves in rebellion. And don't take my word for it. My first book was about a slaughter at the crater. They wrote, they wrote home about this in vivid detail. So it's a great point you're making. Thank you. Hi, Kevin. Yes, um, it would seem to me to, to starting out on this, and as you work through it, you'd have to come up with a really good, clear definition, at least to you, of of what a soldier was, the term soldier, and what constituted military service, um, uh, uh, which can be broadly defined, but it would seem to me that, that you would have wanted to come up with a pretty clear definition. How did you do that? Did you do that? How did you do it? And how does that kind of inform the discussion as to, yeah. as to what a soldier is and what service in the sense that people want to use it is? I th- that's a really good question. And, you know, I didn't have to invent a definition. I simply followed what Confederates... Uh, tell us or told us uh, during the war itself. And I think for both sides, for the United States um, and the Confederacy, it, you know, it's the idea of the citizen-soldier, that as a citizen of a nation, you have an obligation uh, to come to its defense when it's under threat. And of course, both sides engage in the draft, right? Um, and of course, you're drafted. The draft is justified because of course, as a citizen, you have an obligation to come to the defense of, of your respective country. Um, And, well, I mean, beyond that, of course, you're talking about formal enlistment, and the armies would have had a formal enlistment process. And that takes place, of course, for white men uh, throughout just about the entire life of the Confederacy. Uh, For the United States, of course, uh, it's a little bit more complicated because, you know, by 1863, they do start enlisting black men. But the difference, of course, is—and I think this is an important point to remember— um, black men are serving as non-citizens. Remember, the Supreme Court in 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, ruled um, that African Americans are not citizens and cannot be citizens of the United States. Um, so I, I, I sort of—I didn't come up with a definition. I just simply followed along with um, what the Confederacy, um, what they did during the war in terms of recruiting men into the respective regiments. I hope that sort of is good.
3: I want to thank you for coming and for giving us this presentation. You're welcome. As you have indicated, uh, you are certainly aware that there are other scholars who have looked at the same evidence that you have done and have come to markedly different conclusions. Um, Some of them, indeed, are African Americans. I'm acquainted with some of them. Uh, There are scholars of earlier day whose work has not been uh, refuted by any means. Uh, One of them uh, I was privileged to know uh, was Eugene Genovese, who was working on some of these issues at the time of his death, we need to recognize that um, people change their minds over time. They change their attitudes over time. Uh, There were people in the South who thought secession uh, was a mistake, as in the event it proved to be. There were people in the North who thought the South should be allowed to go peacefully. I'm not sure, I'm not sure of the, what
2: the question is. The question
3: um, is: um, Do you recognize that there are other uh, opinions, and do you recognize the possibility that this persistent myth persists because it is a myth?
2: So I'm going to try and respond. But thank and thank you. Um, is there a is there a, a, a a range of opinion on this. Uh, the answer, of course, is absolutely. Now, now Genovese, um, Eugene Genovese, in fact, did write a little bit about uh, this specific issue in one of his last books. It was a, it was a book, a small book uh, published by Cambridge University Press called Fatal Deception. And he does address this issue. He actually addresses the issue of the uh, enlistment debate. Um, but there's nowhere in, the, in this specific book uh, that Genovese talks about black soldiers. Genovese is very clear, in fact, um, that the Confederacy was engaged in something uh, very different, was going to, to make a, a, a drastically uh, a, a new move in a very different direction uh, by 1865. So I'm not quite sure what in Genovese uh, you're referencing. Um, and, and perhaps we can, we can talk uh, later on. Uh, look, let me, be, let me just sort of be clear here. I don't claim to have the last word on this subject. I mean, I, I'm a working historian. Uh, I looked at the evidence. I provided what I think is a, uh, an interpretation that, that actually uh, takes seriously what Confederates themselves said during the war and what they said after the war. Uh, and as best I can tell, the idea that the Confederacy... Uh, was recruit had recruited before 1865? Significant numbers of black soldiers that would have come to that would have been a huge surprise to real Confederates. If you can find me the evidence, I would I would love to see it uh, because I would learn something. And I am, as a historian, always. I mean, historians we put stuff out there. We look for that response and that pushback. New evidence comes to light. New questions are posed. The questions that are posed. Um, oftentimes lead to new interpretations. Um, some of those c- interpretations compete with one another. Sometimes they supplement one another. So I am all for learning more about this subject. Um, so I, you know, I, that, that's the only way I can respond to, to what you offered, and I, and I thank you. Hi, hey, uh, thank you for uh, coming to speak tonight. Um, of all of the persistent myths surrounding Confederate memory, what about this one in particular attracted you to it enough to write about it and address it? Yeah, I first came across it roughly in 2008. And I think there are a couple things. First, as someone who is interested in memory, uh, it's just a wonderful case study to get at, um, you know, many of the, the sort of deeply ingrained myths about the Confederacy, specifically about slavery more generally. But then as an educator, you know, as someone who, is, who has taught for the last 20 years, and, and I'm seeing, of course, over the years, you know, my students more and more, our students uh, more and more, are now relying on the Internet. And watching the way they're, actu- they're engaging or, or, or looking, uh, searching for information and, and assessing it, And it's almost entirely lacking. And so it's always interesting to sort of, it has been interesting for me to to look at this as an example where the internet was supposed to be this um, this, this wonderful new tool, powerful new tool, which it certainly is. Um, But I think there is a certain truth to this idea of, well, I wouldn't say fake news, but fake history. You can certainly apply it. it's just fascinating to watch that the more we become, we're, we're relying on the Internet, the more we're being led astray. And that is where this this myth lives and thrives. And uh, as an educator, I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated by that. It's not just history. It's any subject out there, especially, of course, you know, science. Um, and it can be dangerous. I mean, look at what happened to the author of that textbook. So it's um, it brings together a number of things uh, for me as a historian and, and educator. Thanks for the question.